Good morning to you. Today is Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection Sunday is Christianity's defining moment. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 13 that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The very first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2 went like this. Brothers, I must say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. There being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, one of the patriarch David's descendants, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses of that. The very first time people tried to silence the Christian church was in connection to the church's bold proclamation of Jesus' resurrection. Acts chapter 4 says, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And, and they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. At Mars Hill, before the assembled philosophers and intellectual inquirers at the great Areopagus, Paul, in Acts 17, said this, God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed and furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Romans 1.4 is clear that the Holy Spirit has declared with power that Jesus Christ is the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. And so as we come to Easter, we come to the fulcrum of all of the Bible. Friends, this is the Gospel. The Gospel I preach to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are saved if you hold fast to the Word I preached to you. Now those words are the opening of our passage today. As it is Easter Sunday, we have paused in our linear progression through the book of Corinthians, and we are pausing for one Sunday in our discussion of spiritual gifts, which occupied chapters 12 through 14. We have one more message from chapter 14 for next week. But we are skipping ahead, just for today, to the very next chapter, so that today we might ponder one of the most important passages in all of Scripture, the passage which boldly and unequivocally says, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. And so with that in mind, if you would turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together in His text. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we invite you this Resurrection Sunday to bring your resurrection power to bear, that you would take my meager words alongside your powerful word, and that you would shape us into a holy people, a people consecrated unto the King. I pray, Lord Jesus, as the church is definitionally the ecclesia of God, the called out ones, that today you would call some out of darkness and into light. Just as you stood at the grave of Lazarus and specifically said, Lazarus, come forth, and he came out of the grave, though wrapped in the trappings of death. He had to be assisted out of those trappings. He didn't ask to come forth. He had no part in it. You just commanded it sovereignly. And were you not to put the caveat Lazarus, then I suppose every person in every grave everywhere would have come forth at the command of the author of life. There is resurrection power in Jesus Christ. And I pray that the power of the resurrection, that we would understand this is the gospel, that we would make our stand on it, that we would believe in it, that we would be saved by it, that we wouldn't pass by it informed, but we would come to it and be transformed. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand. And by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive at the time of this writing, though some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then... It was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Friends, there are five takeaways from our passage today, and they form the basis for our outlines. If you've gotten the news and notes, you're able to click and get the outline ahead of time, or you can just write along with us. The first point in our Easter sermon this Sunday is that this gospel, well, this gospel is biblical. This gospel is biblical. Look at our text. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins, now here's the phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance 
with the Scriptures. This Gospel is biblical in two ways. Uh, This Gospel was predicted by the Old Testament, and this Gospel is accurately recorded in the New Testament. Uh, The Old Testament predicted Jesus' sinless life, His substitutionary death, and His victorious resurrection. Isaiah 7.14 predicted that God would incarnate. Over 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah, moved of the Spirit, said, Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and we shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now this same Isaiah who who predicted God coming in the flesh also predicted that God would be rejected by men and He would sacrificially die substitutionally for you and I, for sinners. He would be the Savior. Isaiah 53 accurately predicted the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Bible says this person was pierced for our sins, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. And all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have every one turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Now about a thousand years before Jesus was ever born, King David prophesied in Psalm 22 about Jesus' death. David penned these words, and I ask you as you go through the Gospels this Easter, do these words written a thousand years before the time of Christ sound familiar at Easter? King David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just as the Old Testament predicts, predicted the death of Christ. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver him. Let Him rescue him. For He delights in him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Written a thousand years before Jesus experienced this. Clearly, the Old Testament predicts the Messiah's suffering. Where does it point to the Messiah's rising? On the third day. Well, these are, these are more subtle, but they're still ample. Uh, Jesus himself says, look at the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying, just as Jonah was essentially left for dead, uh, uh, Jonah was three days, that was when you thought that you were definitely dead, in, in the belly of the fish, he was not coming back, it was all over, and yet God released him from death, 
so Christ will be in, in the earth for three days and then be released, showing His power over death. You also see this in what the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 15.23. He compares Christ's resurrection to the Old Testament first fruits offerings. Uh, we will talk more of this in a subsequent Sunday when we are in that section of 1 Corinthians 15. But I just want to share with you that the first fruits of Leviticus 23, when were they were presented? Well, they were presented on the day following the Sabbath after the Passover. Now, since the Sabbath was, was the seventh day, and the day after the Sabbath, well, that would be the, the first day. That would be Sunday, what we call the Lord's Day, Indeed, Resurrection Day. And thus, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And, and thus, He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So, not only is the Gospel accurately predicted in the Old Testament, but friends, the Gospel is accurately recorded in the New. You see, biblical Jesus is historical Jesus. What the Gospel reveals to us about Jesus, friends, that corroborates with the facts of history concerning Jesus. And this brings us to our second point. The Gospel is not only biblical, this Gospel is also historical. This Gospel is historical. You know, it's totally unlike all the other religious options under the sun. Unlike this world's panoply of religions that men have invented, Christianity is not based on mythology, it's based on history. Christianity is a historically verifiable religion. It is not some leap of faith into some supposed prophet's personal but unverifiable claim. A claim no one else can ever substantiate. We look at the major world religions today. Muslims are asked to build their lives around the prophecies of one man. His name was Muhammad. And, and he supposedly had an encounter with an angel in a cave near Mecca. Now the only problem with that is no one else can historically verify that this actually occurred. It was just him and this angel, supposedly. Now, Mormons are asked to build their lives around the, the, the supposed prophecies of, of, of one man, Joseph Smith, who supposedly heard from the angel Moroni, which no one else saw. And, and this angel Moroni supposedly shared several golden plates that no one else has ever seen. Indeed, no one else can ever find. Buddhists in another part of the world, uh, they're asked to build their lives around the, the supposed enlightenment of one man, Siddhartha Gautama, when he meditated under a Bodhi tree. And yet, no one can actually substantiate that that enlightenment was real. Christianity is nothing like that or any other religion. Biblical Christianity, instead of the supposed prophecies of one man, or the existential encounter of one person that no one else can verify, Christianity stakes its claim on the historically verifiable life of Jesus Christ. On the historically verifiable death of Jesus Christ. 
in on the historical reality that many people said they saw the risen Christ on multiple occasions. I want you to listen to the historical gospel again. The Bible says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. Historical reality. For our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. Historical reality. That He was raised on the third day. Certainly there was an empty tomb on the third day. Historical reality. In accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas. And then to the twelve, which we have good historical evidence for. That He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James. And then to all the other apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to also me, that is the apostle Paul, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I want you to notice that Paul's argumentation for the resurrection is not based on mythology, but history. Jesus lived. Jesus died. He was buried, and on the third day, his tomb was empty. And numerous and various eyewitnesses all saw the risen Christ. Friends, this gospel is historical. Uh, Dr. Gary Habermas is considered the world's foremost scholar on the historicity of the resurrection. Uh, Dr. Habermas meticulously collected and then subsequently analyzed over 1,400 of the most critical scholastic works on the resurrection of Jesus Christ written between 1975 and his dissertation time, 2003. And his widely respected research on the subject, so vast, so wide, so thorough, is available in a book called The Risen Jesus and Future Hope. And that book compellingly demonstrates that virtually all scholars from across the ideological spectrum, okay, so that would include ultra-liberals to Bible-thumping conservatives, all the resurrection scholars agree on 12 facts concerning Jesus' death and resurrection. And those 12 points of scholastic agreement regarding the resurrection are this. I'm going to read them verbatim. Number one, it's agreed among the scholars that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Number two, that he was buried, most likely, in a private tomb. All the scholars agree with that, even those who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Number three, soon afterwards, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved, despondent, and they lost hope. All the scholars agree on that. Number four, that Jesus' tomb was found empty very early after his internment. They agree on that. Number five, the disciples had experiences they believe were appearances with the resurrected Christ. That's what the scholars all agree on. Number six, due to those experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed. They were even willing to die for this belief. All the scholars agree to that. Number seven, the proclamation of the resurrection, it is agreed by all scholars that the proclamation of the resurrection took place very early from the very beginnings of the church. Number eight, the disciples' public testimony and preaching of the resurrection, that took place in the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus had been 
crucified and buried shortly before. Number nine, the scholars agree that the gospel message centered on the preaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number 10, it is agreed by the scholars of all stripes that Sunday was the primary day for gathering and worshiping, which is a huge change because the Jews had worshiped for millennia on the day of the Sabbath, which was the seventh day, and now they were changing to the first. Uh, Number 11, James, the scholars agree, the brother of Jesus was a skeptic at this time, and yet he was then converted because he believed He saw the resurrected Jesus too. And number 12, the scholars agree that just a few years later, a man named Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul the Apostle, became a Christian believer due to an experience that he also believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. Those 12 facts, scholars of all stripes agree to those 12 facts. Now let me tell you, internet trolls, they may not agree with those things. They may dispute those 12 things, but historians do not. Scholars do not. Our scripture today says many people saw him resurrected. So who saw resurrected Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us friends and followers and family and even foes saw the resurrected Jesus. Sometimes it was just one or two who saw the resurrected Christ. And sometimes it was a dozen. Sometimes it was over 500. These resurrection sightings were not hallucinations, my friends. Because there is no such thing as a mass hallucination in utter synchronization. Hallucinations are an individual phenomenon. They happen in an individual's mind. And therefore, they are personal and individual. There is no such thing as a universal hallucination. Equally, these resurrection sightings couldn't be, well, mistakes. Maybe that was Jesus. Because the kinds of people who saw him knew him so well. The disciples that walked with him, ate with him, listened to him, staked their lives on him for three years they realized that is the resurrected Christ. Now these resurrection sightings can't be dismissed as mere uh, psychosomatic hopefulness. They were just hoping he would come back, so they, they sort of conjured it up, they dreamed it up. No, because many people who didn't think Jesus was going to arise ended up seeing Jesus, and it altered their life. I think the strongest case there is James, his brother. James was not a believer during Christ's life and only became a believer when he saw his brother resurrected. In fact, James became the chief leader of the Jerusalem church when the disciples are scattered. And he became that leader only because he saw Jesus resurrected. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. What would it take to convince you that your brother was the Son of God? I mean, you know your brother quite well. And so James said, no, no, no. But, but the appearance of resurrected Jesus utterly changed the mind of James. Let me ask you another question about another person. What would it take to change the mind of a man who set off to round up Christians in order to stamp out Christianity? What would it take to transform a hateful persecutor of the church into the greatest missionary in the history 
of the church. That's a pretty radical transformation. And the answer is, it took meeting the resurrected Jesus. And that road on Damascus experience turned Saul the persecutor into the apostle Paul. Resurrected Jesus was seen by his friends, from the friend who denied him, Cephas, which is Aramaic for Peter, to the men who discipled him. We see this in verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, the man who denied him. And then to the twelve, the, man, the men who followed him. Resurrected Jesus was not just seen by his friends, he was seen by his flock, verse 6. And his family, verse 7. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, his earthly family. Resurrected Jesus was seen by his followers in verse 7, and even by his foe in verse 8. Then to all the apostles, his followers, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, this was Jesus' foe at the time, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Those are the facts. The historical facts, because our gospel is not just biblical, it is also historical. One theologian noted this. It's an extended quote, but I want you to listen carefully. Since our gospel is centered on the historical facts, Martin Luther was absolutely correct to speak of the gospel as being outside of us. People think Christianity is something only to us. No, it's something that's true, whether you believe it or not. Gravity is true, whether you believe it or not. And that's why Wiley e. Coyote can run across and fall to his death. But it wasn't true that the roadrunner who didn't know about gravity wouldn't fall. That only happens in cartoons. And so this theologian says, our relationship before God does not depend on how we feel about ourselves and our progress in the Christian life at any given moment. This gospel does not depend on how sorry we are, nor how sincere we are, or how many works we have done. Our salvation depends on what Jesus did for us in our place. He goes on to say our salvation was accomplished for us on a Roman cross about 2,000 years ago, one Friday afternoon, a short walk outside of the walls of Jerusalem. This is what we mean when we speak of the gospel as grounded in the objective facts of history. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. And had you been there, you would have seen these things. End quote. Friends, there is no saving faith apart from the facts of the gospel. The fact that Jesus lived sinlessly, that he died substitutionally, and that he rose victoriously, and he did this for you and for me. The Bible says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And that brings us to point three today. Point three today, this gospel is not only biblical, this gospel is not only historical, but friends, this gospel is salvific. This gospel is salvific. The Bible says, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, 
in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. You see, Jesus died for our sins. That means our problem is that we are sinners. That is our problem. Not that we're ignorant, not that we're good little boys and girls who just need a slight reformation, some education. No, friends, we need total transformation. Our problem is we are sinners. And since we are sinners, we need a Savior. And that's why Jesus is the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. Please understand, there is no system on earth suited to destroy man's sinful disposition and so change his heart from stone to flesh, from death to life. There is no other system but biblical Christianity. And historically, nothing else has so changed men's lives than biblical Christianity. By faith in Christ, we become new creatures with new natures. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. For two millennia, countless homes in every inhabited continent have found that faith in Christ, well, it changes people. I mean, it radically changes people. It totally changes people. It turns Saul's into Paul's. Drunks become sober because of resurrected Jesus. Addicts become emancipated because of resurrected Jesus. Explosive people become patient people because of resurrected Jesus. Hateful people become gracious people because of resurrected Jesus. Fools become wise because of resurrected Jesus. Broken people are mended by the gospel and they begin to mend others. Because of resurrected Jesus. Friends, this gospel and only this gospel habitually creates wounded healers and servant leaders. Why? Because it does not merely add rules to our life to obey. It gives us new life. Listen to how Paul describes his conversion. Paul does not describe it as the inclusion of new religious ethics, but rather a realignment so radical that he can only describe it in the terms of a new birth. Verse 8, Last of all, as to one who is untimely born, He appeared also to me. Jesus pleaded with us in the Gospel of John. Indeed, in context, He pleaded with the most righteous amongst us of His day, the great Pharisee, a member of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, the special 70 who adjudicated the law to the people, the man Scripture calls the teacher of Israel. That man was Nicodemus. And Jesus looked at Nicodemus, who had it all together. If anyone had it together, it was Nicodemus. And he said, you must be born again. Not it'd be a good thing, maybe. You must be born again. And so how do we obtain that? If the gospel is terrific, because it is salvific, how do I obtain the blessings of Christ 
in my needy situation? Will you obtain it just like how the Bible says you do? You must receive God's grace through your personal faith in Jesus. Ephesians 2 says, though that we were all once spiritually dead in our sins, we can be made alive through Christ Jesus. How? The Bible says in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You can't earn this. You can only receive this. It is not the result of works. Ephesians 2.9 So that no one can boast. Now Paul says the very same thing here in 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to look again at verse 10, please. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He was born again, how? By the grace of God. And His grace towards me was not in vain. And so we preach of the grace of God. Received through faith. And so you believe the grace of God. Received through faith. You see, friends, grace means unmerited favor. That means it is free. You cannot earn it. God must give it. Grace is free to us entirely, but it costs the Lord Jesus mightily. Our sin cost our Savior His very life. And we know that great substitution of our debts or His merit was approved by the Father in heaven because Jesus did not just die for our sin, friends. No, He resurrected as proof that sin and death could not hold Him. When He cried, it is finished, we know that cry is true because He resurrected to demonstrate His power over death. One preacher put it like this, without the resurrection, salvation could not be provided, and without belief in the resurrection, salvation cannot be received. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. And that brings us to point four today. You see, this gospel is not only biblical and historical and salvific, but this gospel is holistic. This gospel is holistic. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice, we are saved when we trust in Jesus. And we are being saved as God's Spirit works in us daily, conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus as we cooperate to the Spirit's patient pruning and shaping of our otherwise straying lives. And we shall be saved entirely and eternally when Jesus comes back for us in glory. Titus 2, 11-14 tells us, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. See the holistic nature? It's not just saving us, it's reforming us. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Not way over there, but right over here. Verse 13. Waiting for the blessed hope 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify to Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, friends, this gospel is holistic. It does not merely save our souls as we wait for some sweet uh, by-and-by, pie-in-the-sky moment. No, Jesus came. He told us that we might have life and might have it abundantly right now. Jesus' resurrection is able to set captives free, to enable us to let go of every hindrance and run the race marked out for us, apart from that besetting sin that would otherwise so easily ensnare us. Now, you see, I may falter and waver, but through Christ, I can do all things. For His sinless life, His sacrificial death, and His victorious resurrection has given me all that I need, the Scripture says, for life and for godliness. Here is how Paul explains that our gospel is holistic. Listen to verse 10 again. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see, God's grace released in our lives through our personal faith in Christ brings about what? It brings about God's good work. It brings about God's good fruit in our lives. You have to have your root in faith in Christ, and then in time you will bear the fruit of the work of Christ in your soul. And that is how angry people become gentle people. And that is how uh, stingy people become generous people. And that is how all of the change happens. You have to have real root in Christ by faith, and in time you will see real fruits from Christ because of your faith. And friends, I want you to understand that order matters. Every religion under the sun says you got to earn God's favor. you got to work for it. You know, don't do this. Be sure to do that. That's how you make God like you more. You know, they say it in different ways in different religions. Some say pray five times a day. Some say don't eat pork. Some say go on a pilgrimage. Some say no coffee, no tea, no alcohol for you and me. Uh, Some say something to the effect of help little old ladies cross the street. But biblical Christianity is unique. It recognizes... The problem is us. And it recognizes, therefore, since the problem is us, the solution must come from outside of us because we can't solve this problem. If we were in a body of water, if we were on a a cruise and somebody fell over and they were a non-swimmer and they fell into the water and they did not know how to swim, we would do no good standing on the railing of the deck and say, hey, fella, you got to swim harder or you're going to drown. No, 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 you have to dive into that water and you have to rescue a non-swimmer because he cannot swim. And that is what Jesus did at Calvary. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And so I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Which brings us to our last point today. Yes, this gospel is biblical. Yes, this gospel is historical. Yes, this gospel is salvific. Yes, this gospel is holistic. But you need to understand something. This gospel is not automatic. This gospel is not 
automatic. If you do nothing, it will pass you by. If you just hear about it in one ear and out the other, it does you no good. You see, the fact that this gospel is not automatic means that knowing the facts of the gospel, well, that's not going to save you. James 2.19 tells us the demons know the facts. They just don't have the faith. And so they go to hell for it. James 2.19 says you believe that God is one. Their facts are right. And so you do well. But even the demons believe that and they shudder because there's no redemption in their situation. Understanding facts is not the same as having saving faith. And there are many people that listen in on Easter and they know the facts, but they haven't applied the faith. Romans 10.9 is clear. We must believe certain facts in our hearts, but we also must surrender to Jesus Christ and His authority over us. We must humble ourselves because God gives grace to the humble, but He humbles the proud. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that is, you say it and you mean it, and you believe in your heart the facts that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Here's the really exciting thing. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how far from God you are. It doesn't matter if you're from the 44th generation of some other religion. It doesn't matter if you have mocked God like Paul did. It doesn't matter if you have no time for God like many have. If you will make Jesus your Lord and Savior, you will be saved forever. But here's the deal. This kind of salvation isn't some fleeting feeling in a moment of religious exuberance. Friends, this is a decision to follow Jesus forever. That you're saying, Jesus is now my new Lord. The old hymn writer expressed it like this. And, and saints have sung it for a very long time. My heart, my life, my all I bring. He is my master, my Lord and King. And wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Another hymn writer expressed it like this, and again, the saints sing it because it's so true. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. No turning back. Here's how Paul expressed it. It's basically the same thing. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. There's an implicit concern in this passage. Do not believe in vain. That is, do not have a fleeting interest in Jesus like the rocky and thorny soil of our Lord's great parable. Don't be like that initial enthusiast who hears the gospel and is excited about its benefits, but wants to have no rooting in Jesus' lordship. So in times of testing, when the sun starts beating, they wither and fall away because they had no root, so they couldn't bear fruit, and the whole thing is gone. 
Don't be like the double-minded inquirer in Scripture who wants a, a handful of heaven but never willing to leave the dirt of this earth behind. Don't be like that sad person who hears the gospel and instead of letting it take root in their life by uprooting their competing agendas in this life, instead they let the worries of life and the pursuit of wealth and, and comfort and pleasure, well, it chokes out, Jesus says, the good gospel seed until all they're left is the world's weeds. And the weeds will be gathered up and thrown in the fire. But the wheat will be ingathered and be with the Father forever. Wheat are weeds. Real faith or fleeting faith. I want to urge you today, this Easter Sunday, to give your heart to Jesus Christ. To give your life to Jesus Christ. To ask Him to be the authority in your life to make Jesus Lord. To ask Him to give you new life so you can walk in a new way. I want you to ask Him to be your good shepherd today so that He would shepherd you through life's challenges and into the waiting arms of your Heavenly Father. For no one can come to the Father, Jesus said, except through the Son. Friends, this is the proper response to the Gospel. You must receive it. You must make a stand on it. And you must firmly hold to it. As Jesus puts it, he puts it this way. You must take up your cross and follow me. That is, die to your ambitions and live for something far greater, far better, far more powerful. Because after the cross comes the resurrection. The central fact of the Christian religion is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Had it all ended on the cross, there would be no good news to share. There would be no bold church to bear witness. There would be no New Testament to teach. And there would be no hope for life here or in the hereafter. But this is the gospel. And it is why, vainly, they seal the dead. Vainly, they watch his bed. This is why death cannot keep its prey, because he tore the bars away, and up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor of the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for confirming your son's atoning by Jesus' rising. That we can know that we know that we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life because he had victory over death. He overcame sin and death. He indeed propitiated for us. He took away the wrath of God and brought to us the righteousness and riches of God, adopting us into your family forever. And so now we have full rights as sons. We don't just have to call you as servants, though we are. We can call you as friends. We can call you as brothers because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. We know for certain that we will be resurrected because He was resurrected. And if you're here today and you knew the facts about Jesus, or maybe you didn't know the facts, but you're here today and the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you and you're going to know what that feels like. You're going to feel like the, 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 the God of the universe is inviting, is calling you, come home, sinner, come home. 
And you want to do that today. You want to become a Christian. You want to make Jesus the Lord of your life. You believe that He died for your sin and that He resurrected triumphantly, defeating sin and death, and you want to change allegiance from all that used to be so important to that which is truly important. If you want to do that with me today, you can do that in the quietness of your heart right where you are, and you just need to tell Jesus this, and we call that praying when you talk to Jesus. And your prayer can be expressed like this. And it isn't so much the words magically like it's an incantation. It is your firm conviction and decision to stand on this gospel. From this day forward, because of this Christ and what he did on the cross and what he did on Easter Sunday. Your prayer can be expressed like this. Father, forgive me, for I know that I am a sinner. And I cannot save myself. I need a Savior. And since my problem is sin, the solution must be from someone sinless. And the only sinless one is your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived sinlessly, and then He died substitutionally. And then He rose victoriously. And so I put my faith in your Son, and I ask that you would remake me, that I would be born again, and that you would start to evidence the fruit of Christ in my life because of the root of Christ I'm putting in Christ right now. Help me to shine like stars in a wicked and depraved universe for the King of kings and His glory. Give me the boldness to tell others about this new faith I have in Jesus. I might not have all the words to say it, but give me the passion to share it. Help me to have the obedience to publicly declare I'm a Christian through baptism. Give me a willingness and a hunger to be in Your Word day in and day out, for man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the Father. Remake me into a useful tool for the great architect who's building an unshakable kingdom. Amen and amen.